This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Welcome to the INCORE Transitional Justice Institute and Healing Through Remembering seminar series on dealing with the past. Uh, you're all really, really welcome. At this moment in time, we have well over, well, we have about 225 people online. Thank you for the great response. Just so that everybody knows, uh, firstly, my name is uh, Brandon Hamber. I'm the John Hume and Tip O'Neill Chair in Peace at Ulster University. So I'll be chairing us uh, today. Um, what we've had to do is turn off everybody's uh, speakers and also their cameras just to deal with the fact that uh, we have so many people, so many people online, which is a, a great, uh, it's great that we have that many people online, but it's the best way to, to handle things. Um, but thanks very much for joining us and, and uh, for the great response. Uh, the aim of this uh, seminar series has really been to widen the debate, particularly about the Stormont House Agreement in Northern Ireland, but also the issues of dealing with the past. And our plan is over the course of the year to have a range of seminars on different topics exploring, exploring this issue. Uh, we had originally planned uh, with Healing Through Remembering to do these all as face-to-face -face seminars, and we had 10 seminars lined up uh just before the COVID crisis uh we've moved it online as all of you now know and in fact i've had a brilliant response uh so we of course miss you in the face-to-face -face seminars but i think we have many other people uh, from other places uh, feel free uh, in the chat box to say hi if you're from somewhere uh, slightly uh, more exotic uh, if you wish to to say hello please drop us a line um the seminar today is uh, entitled The Need for a Trauma-Informed Approach to Address the Conflict Legacy. And it will be delivered by uh, Professor Siobhan O'Neill from Ulster University. Uh, she's a professor of, of mental health uh, sciences. Um, so Siobhan, you're very, very welcome. And we look forward to your seminar. Siobhan will speak for about 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, and then we'll take questions and I'll explain to you how the questions will work at that moment in time. But you're all very welcome. Thanks for being here. And uh, thank you, Siobhan. We look forward to your, to your talk. Oh, thank you, Brandon. That's lovely. And it's amazing to see we've 228 people on the call now. So that's fantastic. And thank you so much for giving your um, afternoon to this. I really, really appreciate it. It's an honour to be able to do this sort of thing. Um, and so we'll get started. I'm going to share with you my my screen um, so that you have my slides. Okay, so, so I'm going to talk about uh, the trauma-informed approach and then I'm going to apply that to the legacy of the troubles. Um, and in doing so, I'm going to present a trauma model and, and make that argument for why is a trauma model appropriate and necessary for this. Um, what does trauma-informed mean? And then what does it look like in relation to the legacy, specifically the institutions and the structures? And then we're going to have some time for discussion. 
So we'll start by looking at, at the rationale for um, for focusing really on trauma as part of this, rather than other concepts that have been raised there. Um, and I'm going to bring you back to a study that um, got started with my sort of seminal piece of work in relation to mental health in Northern Ireland, and that was the Northern Ireland Study of Health and Stress. Um, this was one of the World Mental Health Surveys. So the World Mental Health Surveys were conducted in over 30 countries all around the world, um, led by Harvard University. And the idea was, it was started in the, the late 90s, and the idea was that we would use the psychiatric criteria for mental illness, but we would go into the general population um, and ask people about their symptoms and their experiences to try and work out how many people in any given country would meet the criteria for a mental illness. And we also asked them about things that had happened to them in their childhood um, and, and throughout their life. And we used a structured interview. So we have um, these lay interviewers, amazing people did this work for us. We interviewed over 4,000 people um, and it was a representative sample of the Northern Ireland population. So we can make claims about number percentages here. And in that interview, we asked about traumatic events. And based on the type of event, the time and their age when this happened, we were able to establish the, the numbers and the proportions of the Northern Ireland population at that time who were exposed to trauma that, that was related to the Northern Ireland troubles. Um, and this was in 2005 to 2008, so quite a, quite a while ago now, actually. We found that 39% had uh, conflict-related trauma, and these were things like bombings, shootings, being involved in riots. 18%, um, nearly one in five of the Northern Ireland population at that time had seen someone killed or seriously injured. Um, and that's a particular type of trauma that often stays with a person and can have mental health consequences, although not always, of course. When we looked at the criteria for a mental illness, we find that again, nearly 40% met the criteria for any mental illness. Um, and this included mild mental illnesses and the most common mental health problem um, in, in the Northern Ireland population um, was anxiety disorders. And that, that would still be the case. Anxiety related disorders are very common indeed. Nearly one in five, 18.8% there, met the criteria for any mood disorder. And those disorders are depression, bipolar disorders, um, the kind of mental illnesses that we think of when we think about mental illness. Very, very common. One of the, the really surprising things about this study was that um, our rates of post-traumatic stress disorder were the highest of all of the countries that were involved in, in that series of studies, and that was 8.8%. And I'll explain later on why PTSD is so important here. Um, so when we think about mental illness, we're thinking really here about a set of symptoms that interfere with our functioning, interfere with our well-being and prevent us from achieving our potential. So it's important to remember that these are life-limiting conditions or life-limiting illnesses that people develop through no fault of their own. Um, and a lot of them are treatable, but unfortunately in our study very few people had actually come forward and received treatments effective, particularly for those mental illnesses that were relating to the Northern Ireland Troubles. 
Um, so the two references are there at the bottom and the papers are all available from my website. So looking then at that little pie chart, I think this is helpful because um, we, pr we presented the rates for individual mental illnesses, but this gives us an overall picture of what the population looked like in 2005 to 2008. And despite the fact that there was a lot of trauma exposure, 71% of the population, nearly 72% there, had a low risk of developing a mental illness. Now that included people with mild mental illnesses that, that would have alleviated themselves over time. So that's a good news story. And there is a story of resilience in Northern Ireland. Um, and we know that lots of people who have trauma do not go on to develop mental illness. Um, but unfortunately, we have the gold and the red and orange sections there that represent the proportion who have mental health problems. 14.6% is the general mental illnesses that you will find in any population. And these are people who've had childhood adversities, things that have happened to them in their childhood that increase their risk of mental illness later in life. Um, and you find across the world, it's, it's the childhood factors that are most associated with the development of mental illness over time. So mental illness is about how we respond to stress, but that stress response um, is, is very much influenced by the things that happened to us in those early years. And that's so, so important to point that out. The red and orange groups are the people who've had conflict exposure, trauma relating to the conflict, and they have mental illnesses that were slightly different in the way they, they appeared. Um, the the those red and orange groups, um, they were characterized by their use of alcohol and other substances. And of course, we know that alcohol was a way that people had of managing the trauma and the stress of, of the troubles. Um, and the red and orange groups also had high rates of suicidal behaviour. In fact, that 4.3% of the population had multiple traumatic events and um, childhood adversities. All of these groups had childhood adversities. And that red, that dark red group had 15 times the rate of suicidal thoughts and behaviour as the blue group. So suicidal behaviour is very much related to conflict exposure and conflict related trauma here. Um, but it's important to note that childhood adversities account overall for more mental illness in the Northern Ireland population than the troubles. So the troubles is really only there in 2008 um, in the red and orange groups. So, um, so it all really comes down to when we talk about trauma informed, we're really talking about that understanding or awareness of the effect of trauma on the body and brain. That's what trauma informed means. And by even sitting here listening to this, you're becoming trauma informed. Um, if you know about the effect of stress in your body, you will you will know that that trauma a form of stress. So we, we go back into that stress response, and the body responds to stress. It's a biological response. It's evolved over time because it has served us well. The body prepares to fight or run away. It's about fighting an aggressor um, and we sometimes call this the fight or flight response. Um, so there's all sorts of things that happen in the body. It's outside of our control. It's really important to that. It's a subconscious thing. At a subconscious level, the body reacts to things, to things in our environment, to things people say to us, to things that we see and feel and hear um, in a way that activates the stress response. So if there's one slide that I think tries to summarise uh, trauma informed and what that means, it's this one here. This is um, the circuits of survival. Um, 
And, and really, again, I'm setting out three different states um, that we move between in response to stress or trauma. So right at the very, very top, we have safe and social. That's um, the, the situation that I hope most of you are in right now. It's that kind of calm, relaxed state. We're not really necessarily on our guard. We're connected, we're engaged with other people and, and our environment around us. Um, we can experience joy, we are hopeful, we are curious and we have compassion. So safe and social is a nice ideal state for us and it's good whenever we're in that state. Um, if, if we have a perception of danger, if something triggers us a little bit, and it could be right now, if there was a knock to the door, I might go into fight or flight. Um, if, if something comes through the window at me, I'd definitely go into fight or flight. Um, and this is where the body becomes mobilized. Something is happening and the body's responding to that. Um, I become more vigilant. And perhaps aggressive because I might need to fight, um, certainly avoidant. Um, it's a very, very different state from safe and social. It's a stressed state. Um, I would raise my voice, shout, um, and it's the body's way of preparing to run away or fight. So it is a state of anger, of aggression, and it's a completely natural state to be in. And it serves us really, really well if the environment demands it. So we move from safe and social down into fight or flight if there's a threat or aggressor. But the, the, the lowest stage here is the shutdown stage. And this is sometimes known as the fight, flight or freeze. It's a freeze part of the response. And this is where maybe the fight or flight syndrome has been activated a lot. Or there is such a huge thing has happened to us that fighting or running away is impossible. So it's almost like we have shut down, we're playing dead, we're removing ourselves from that that part of the situation, we're distancing, we're dissociating from it. Um, it's a way of protecting the body and protecting the mind as well. Um, it's sometimes described as a state of that, that where the person's suicidal, where they've sunk so far, um, they're sunk into hopelessness or absolute terror. Um, so shutdown again is a it's a very normal state, and if we've had some bad news or something terrible happens, um, some of us are able to mobilise and we can react and fight or flight, whilst others will completely shut down and freeze. Um, and those are both two very very natural states. Um, Sometimes the loss, grief of bereavement leads us to go into shutdown and again completely natural and normal and we need to wait until we can move through that so that we can get back up into safe and social again. Um, so a lot of us even with the COVID pandemic will have been mobilised into a state of fight or flight or even shut down at the prospect of high numbers of deaths, of not being allowed to see our friends and families, that huge loss um, that, that we had as a result of this pandemic can have led us into fight or flight or shutdown. And it is no basis from which to be acting or trying to make decisions or connect with other people or help other people. We need to be back up there and safe and social. And yet it is normal, so self-compassion and self-kindness is so hugely important if we're going through those stages.
So um, another key term whenever we're talking about being trauma-informed is the idea of being triggered. Um, triggering is where we have a subconscious perception of danger. Something deep within us is activated by a sight or a sound or a smell. And this happens so much in relation to the troubles. It's the um, crack in the pavement. Uh, in one of our studies, it was a manhole cover. It was a particular road. It was a door number. It was something like that that triggered the person. And that can activate that stress response. And it's completely out of that person's control. When we back up again, we call it emotional regulation. So we're moving from a state of dysregulation back up to, to regulation again. However, if we have repeated trauma um, exposures, the thresholds for each stage can be recalibrated. So it's almost like the body and the brain are in a state where it moves into fight or flight much more quickly because there's danger everywhere. Or we're a permanent shutdown because the world is such an awful place we can't bear to engage with it. So we're stuck in either of these states. And again, there's lots of people out there because of what's happened to them are in constant fight or flight or constant shutdown. Um, and by understanding where they're coming from, literally where they're coming from on the circuits of survival on this ladder, it will help us help them and, and make meaning from, from what's happening. So um, the next slide is about suicide in Northern Ireland. It's one of my areas of interest. This is a, a, a paper that I did along with Rory O'Connor when we looked at suicide in Northern Ireland and suicide prevention research here. And what we're finding is a pattern where trauma exposure is associated with suicidal behaviour in the next generation. Um, and there's intergenerational trauma. And really, when we talk about intergenerational trauma, we're talking about how trauma and a parent is passed on to the next generation, passed on to their children because of the effects of that trauma on the parent's body and brain, again, through no fault of their own. So it's about parenting practice and also really importantly it's about the legacy of the conflict in its broadest sense um, unemployment deprivation the widespread use of alcohol and drugs to manage stressful life situations so all of those come together to lead um, the suicide rates and rates of mental health problems in the next generation to, to be high as well so what does trauma-informed mean? Well, at a very basic level, it's, it's using the, that understanding that we now have of the stress response and using that and how we engage with people and our understanding of where people, literally where people are coming from. It's about moving from what is wrong with you so that's a kind of a very traditional psychiatric approach where we would say, well, you have depression or you have anxiety. And it's digging beneath the surface. It's, it's asking the question, what has happened to you? Your behaviour is a, a response to trauma, to things that have happened to you, particularly in your childhood, because the brain's growing at such a rate in childhood that these pathways, these stress response pathways are, are being set down at a, at a much faster rate then. And of course, neuroplasticity means it can be changed throughout the lifetime but particularly in early childhood if there's a trauma then we can see that the stress response patterns are slightly different and we need to do a little bit more work with people then in, in later years so moving from what is wrong with you to what has happened to you um, and once we once we do that, once we make that shift and understand 
that all of us are coming from a place of pain and ignorance. Every single one of us have had a history. We've had things that have happened that shapes how we behave and how we are right now. Uh, and, and really, that is that is all trauma informed is. But there are, are specific sets of practices that go along with this approach that I think are very, very useful whenever we're working it out in practice. So turning to post-traumatic stress disorder um, and thinking about trauma and mental illness and how trauma can lead to, to mental illness. PTSD is a unique type of mental illness because it's linked back to a specific trauma. So trauma can influence mental health generally because of the effects of that repeated activation of the stress response and how it changes the way we see the world. Um, but in relation to PTSD, we have a we have a situation where there is a traumatic event, a trauma exposure, and this is a disorder of memory. So in PTSD, the memory isn't set down in the usual way, um, and the person flashbacks and nightmares that are related to that particular event. So in order to process trauma to, to come out the other side in a mentally healthy way, we need to make meaning. We need to understand what happened, how it happened. We need to process that. We need to grieve that if that's a loss. Um, and we need to be able to remember that and integrate it, not forget about it, but remember it in such a way that, that we can make sense of it and then function everyday lives and integrate that into our life story. Um, with PTSD, it's not about remembering. The person tries hard not to remember it because it can come back as a flashback. And in a flashback or a nightmare, it is as if that person is going through that traumatic event again. So that fight or flight response is added. It is as if they are right there and the, the toll on, on the person's physical health is exactly the same as well. Um, so when a trauma leads to flashbacks and nightmares, a person can often then start to engage in avoidance behaviours and numbing of emotional um, affect. Uh, so they change how they feel to try and manage this um, because it's just so aversive. And the third cluster of symptoms that comes with post-traumatic stress disorder is hypervigilance. Um, and remember in the slide where I talked about that recalibration of the body stress response, hypervigilance is part of that. It's where the person becomes more activated more easily and triggers are part of that as well. So something will trigger that and there, there could be an explosion and, and it's totally outside that person's control. It's because of the effect of trauma on their on their body and brain has, has really set this in place. Um, so PTSD is a particular set of symptoms, but often people who have had trauma exposures have uh, part, part of the clusters of symptoms. They don't have to have all three clusters of symptoms. And it's very common that, that we would have flashbacks and nightmares or go into avoidance mode or, or become more hypervigilant hyper in response to trauma. Um, and the aspects of a trauma that that tend to to lead to difficulties and mental illness, if you like, are often around the person's understanding of why that happened and their role in it, or bearing witness to another person's suffering and being unable to put that out of their minds, um, that obtrusive memory ruminating rather than reflecting that constant not being able to control that. Um, and this is where we find 
when we when we talk to people who've had troubles related traumatic events that they're often tormented um, by thoughts of what a person went through or possibly their role in that person's suffering in some way um, and we we had a number of perpetrators people who identified as perpetrators in our study and they had 100 percent ptsd um, they under all of them met the criteria for ptsd so the main point of, of the section of the little webinar is to to get that message across that a trauma-informed lens changes what what you see so when you see violence and aggression and somebody overreacting to something um, we, we change that we think oh what has triggered that what is it in the environment that led them to behave like that or what has happened to them in their past it means that this is just so so difficult for them right now um, and they're behaving in this way and that often changes what you do about it um, when we see withdrawal and disengagement we might actually wonder is that person in a freeze response have they just been so damaged by everything that has happened that they they just can't engage it the world's too unsafe for them to engage in a way right now um, and i think it's useful to apply this maybe to a classroom setting where we have a child who just doesn't want to learn they just walk out they're just they, they're in, they're in freeze mode they can't process anything they're not anywhere near safe and social so there needs to be some work done there before we can bring them back up again and the final bit there is substance use a lot of people use substances particularly alcohol in northern ireland to manage stress it's one of the things we're concerned about in covid and alcohol is a really really good way of getting from fight or flight nicely up into safe and social and again that's it's a common experience that people would have but unfortunately if someone's using alcohol or drugs all the time to, to create that effect then they can very very quickly become dependent on that substance um, and again that influences how we deal with people who use substances and how we help them and help understand what has happened to them that they have become hooked on whatever it is they've they, they've um they've latched onto as a way of managing trauma in their past so we're on track which is really good so i want to go into more detail now about uh, trauma informed in relation to the legacy of the troubles and specifically the structures um, that are that are set in place to deal with the legacy of the troubles so this is um, a diagram here from the Stormont house agreement and there's there's three parts of the the legacy structures there's the historical investigations unit there's the independent commission and information retrieval and we have the oral history archive um, and it's important to, to say actually that by getting to this place it's demonstrating that we are trauma-informed that our politicians have been able to negotiate a settlement and it is so difficult because we know everybody's coming from a different place and we're all coming from a place of pain and ignorance about the other side almost sometimes um, so this is remarkable and this is trauma-informed just that we're actually doing this and recognizing that issues like truth and justice all influence our meaning making process all influence our understanding of what has happened and these are all required if there's any chance that we might um that we might be able to to move on um and come out the other side 
uh, and, and maintain the peace. So what we have there is, is a remarkable agreement that shows um, trauma-informed practice and action. However, there's a few issues in relation to the outworkings of this and what it's going to look like that we need to be aware of, of course. Um, I worked with Professor Hamber on a response to the, the legacy, to, to the consultation on addressing the legacy of the past. I hope you all get an opportunity to see that response. And, and that really sparked this because it was amazing to work with Brandon and see his experiences in other countries and how they've managed all of this. And then to apply what, what I know about mental health in Northern Ireland to this as well. So um, all of what, what you're seeing now in this section is, is written out within that. First challenge that we have in relation to the legacy structures, I think, is how we define victimhood. Um, and this is a very old argument for Northern Ireland. Um, there are different, there's a hierarchy of victimhood, and for many people there there always will be, and, and that's that's their perspective because of the trauma that they've been through. Um, so in the structures, we have very clearly different definitions of victimhood. If you've lost a relative, it's worthy of investigation and truth, recovery. If you've been tortured or disabled, that's you're going to get acknowledgement and storytelling. Um, so there, these are very different levels of validation. So your subjective suffering is, is labelled in a particular way. And that can be very, very difficult um, to, to deal with. Psychologically, that can be difficult because we're minimising something that should never be minimised because um, the, the fear and the threat and the danger is the same for all of us. It's, it's, a fear, it's, it's, our, it's our integrity. It's so, so hugely important. Um, and these kind of things can have a very real psychological impact because they lead to rumination. They can interfere with meaning making. People can get um, get obsessed with the idea that that what they've gone through isn't worthy of of um, of truth, of justice. Um, that they can only tell their story. That they're not going to get uh, compensation, pensions, all of these things. And it's important, I mean, I don't know what we're going to do about any of this stuff, but it's really important that that is set out there and acknowledged and that at least we make people aware of the potential impact of this so that they can start to um, understand how, how it's impacted and help them address that. The other thing is the fact that there's so many different institu institutions and they all deliver different things and we need to approach one or more of the institutions. However, if you think back to our definition of post-traumatic stress disorder, avoidance, disengagement, shutdown, that's all part of a natural normal response to trauma and it can be part of a mental illness as well. So we should not be um, putting triggers within the system. We shouldn't be asking people to go through things that could potentially trigger them and consolidate a mental illness. So it's not about causing a mental illness. This part of it is not about causing a new mental illness, but really repeating that um, really aversive um, flashback nightmare. That, that, that's, what you're, that's what you're bringing somebody into whenever you're triggering them like that. And of course, talking about the, the traumatic event can be triggering, um, and, and that's something we know about. But there are other triggers. There's things in the room. There's the uniforms that people wear. There's the language that people use to describe things. These can all be triggers for different people, so we need to be conscious of that. There's also the issue of how the structures relate to one another. Um, so you might achieve one thing with one institution, something completely different with the other institution. And of course, 
you might have to tell your story to three different bodies in a worst case scenario, three different groups of people again and again and again. Um, and if that doesn't achieve anything for you in a very real way, such as compensation or truth or justice or what you're anticipating, then that can that can almost re-traumatise you because you've gone through that and you've been judged on that basis. Um, so, so these are difficult and there are various support services that are set in place to help people through that. So we need really clearly to know what the roles are and what they'll do so that we don't raise people's expectations. Um, going to receive a particular type of help and then not given that because that's also um, something that is experienced again and again in the past. Um, promises haven't been delivered and that's painful and that's 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 relating to mental illness as well. The, the next difficulty I'm going to discuss is the idea of disclosure. One of the goals is to encourage disclosure and disclosure seems to be a good thing. It's relating to truth and justice and these are important meaning making. But it also has implications for mental health and trauma because what, what's disclosed can lead people to think about events in a very, very different way. There's new stories, there's different truths, they're complex. Um, there's often stories of betrayals. And then there's the effect on the family of a, a victim or survivor where family members are hearing about things for the first time because that relative hasn't discussed them um, and you know they're seeing somebody in a different light, they're seeing a loved one in a, in a very different light, um, maybe even as a perpetrator. Um, and these are all really, really difficult for family members to deal with. And yet there's very little in there about families of those who are involved with the legacy institutions. And we know tran transgenerational trauma is a thing, but we have this very direct link with the trauma and the parent that a family member could be finding out about for the first time. Um, so people need help with these things. So that's a water. So let's try and be trauma-informed. Um, this slide presents a trauma-informed approach and the main facets of that approach. It was um, an approach that was first set out or defined by the US Substance Abuse and Services Administration in 2018, but it's been used all around the world now and applied in numerous different settings, schools, prisons, workplaces. This can be um, picked up and applied anywhere. Um, the first, the first part of it is about realising the impact of trauma and understanding paths for recovery. And I have emphasised here that it's all trauma. So it's not just trauma relating to the troubles. This is about all of the traumas that all of us have endured as we grow up um, and in our lives to this point. So it's trauma caused by the conflict for sure, but trauma in the next generation caused by our responses to that trauma, caused by our drinking, by our inability um, to make connections because we've been in shutdown for so long, our inability to really connect and express love um, to our family and, and the things that need to be said. It's about the childhood adversities that many people have gone through in Northern Ireland. And in, in our study, certainly poverty was the number one adversity that, that people experienced. So poverty and inequality are traumas. It's also about power structures and bullying um, and of course that has connotations of a classroom environment but it's also about bullying in the workplace, bull bullying at government level, it's about all of those things. So it's about all trauma and in that way it's quite woolly, it's about creating a 
kind um, environment, a compassionate environment where we don't cause any new traumas and we realise how widespread it is. And so we've got figures for Northern Ireland there in the first slides, but it's about realising that all of us uh, potentially have had traumatic things happen to us and that even in terms of the troubles that they are not the only traumas that the people have. It's about recognising the signs and symptoms of trauma. It's about, it's about that understanding and awareness of the impact of trauma on the body and the brain and how the trauma on my body and my brain affects my wee daughter and my broader family and the community in which I live. Um, so that awareness is the first part of it. So uh, the training that's happening right now in Northern Ireland um, about the trauma-informed practice that Safeguarding Board are doing, this is, about, this is raising that awareness, really important. It's also about that awareness of the need to act from a place of safe and social of that personal insight of knowing that I, I'm not in a position to make decisions or even to help other people if I'm angry or depressed or in grief that I need to bring myself right back up there. And particularly as a parent engaging with a wee child and their brains developing, we need to be in safe and social. And remember we are pack animals and those triggers, those cues, we're always looking around us to see can we be in safe and social right now. So it's about that group influence as well. It's about compassion and kindness to ourselves and others and it's about this idea of our common humanity, um, respect and equality because trauma impacts on all of us in the same way. So it it's, can be quite a difficult message because it's about insight and looking into our own history and our own past and think of thinking about um, what position we're coming from, what are our triggers. Um, and that self-awareness is really, really important. But then that must come along with self-compassion too. So um, we, we, we can look back at things that we've said and done and be very, very harsh on ourselves. And that's, that's not helpful. We're, we're traumatizing ourselves with our self-talk there. So we need to have that insight and that self-awareness so that we can be kind to ourselves too. So the response um, that SAMHSA set out is about integrating knowledge about trauma into policies, procedures and practices. And this is where we kind of get down to the nitty gritty about, about recommendations for the sisters, because it's all very well and good talking in abstract terms about um, our common humanity and our need for reflection and insight and all of that. Um, but what do we actually do in practice? What can we do on the ground? The first one there is about awareness raising and screening. Um, and that's not about asking people to talk about their trauma, but to talk about the effects of trauma. Having happened to you that made you feel like this. So it's really about looking at feelings rather than what has happened to you. Um, I, I get really uncomfortable at uh, when we put out that message about we need to understand what's happened to people and we need to ask them what's happened to them. Actually, sometimes we don't need to ask them what's happened to them. That's not helpful. We just need to understand how they're feeling um, so that we, we can help them through that. The next bit is about evidence-based treatment. There's a lot of counselling practices that might actually be damaging because they make people go into that traumatic experience too early. The, the treatments for PTSD um, involve 
those memories and working with those memories and essentially reprogramming those memories. It does require a lot of trust to come to that point and alternative and complementary therapies can be really, really useful in moving the body back up to safe and social so the person's in a position to control how they remember um, what has happened to them and reflect on that. But ultimately, in order to treat the trauma-related mental illness, we're talking about things like trauma-focused cognitive therapy um, and the therapies that are recommended by the National Institute of um, Healthcare Excellence. Support is absolutely hugely important here. And that's about, um, and different from treatment, this is about having somebody who is on your side, who's walking you through that process, having a structure built around you that, that supports you literally and metaphorically and navigating the structures and working out what happens next and protects you from some of those um, potentially re-traumatizing aspects of the process. And then independent, uh, as I, because when people are traumatized, when they're not in safe and social, when they're a lot of the time flight or freeze, they're not in a position to make decisions that, that will serve them really well and sometimes they're not in the best position to articulate what's going on for them. So we do need that independent advocacy and that's where having um, mental health specialists to, to talk about this stuff becomes really important and other advocates to work with victims and survivors groups. Um, it's really important that this whole system resists re-traumatization. So that awareness of the effects of triggers and the idea that new inter information may interfere with meaning making. So how do we manage that information? Um, if we know that somebody's triggered by a particular thing, we need to avoid that. But we need to avoid common triggers that, that we know large groups of people who've been affected by the troubles have. We need to ensure that our systems don't re-traumatise. So we need to look at the way that we people have appointments, the language that we use, the, the paperwork that, that we make people go through, the way they communicate, the buildings, the environments, everything is part of that. And then finally, we need to care for staff who are bearing witness to others' trauma. Um, and this has been brought up in the context of the COVID pandemic, where we have staff that are trying to help people, but there are some people that they can't help. Um, and this will be the case in terms of the legacy structures, that there are people with well-meaning staff who are doing their best, but they're listening to terrible stories and their lack of power in that situation may serve um, to, to traumatise them and cause them to ruminate and reflect on, on what's happened. And they're at risk as well, so we need to make sure that they're protected too. So I'm going to end just with our six recommendations that are in our response to the uh, consultation and then we'll have some questions. Um, the first one is about scrutinising that whole process from a holistic victim and survivor centred perspective. So look at their journey through one or more of the structures. So consider it as a whole um, and walk through it and consider victims' families. What information might they get through the media, through other sources, or through that person themselves, and how might that affect them? And what structures are we putting in place, if any? And if we're not, then what advice are we giving them, at least acknowledging this? Um, about support for victims right through the process, making sure that they have that they that they are not alone in this, because that will will impact on them as well. So that's not about treatments, that's about having that support and advocacy there. 
Um, the, we, we need that demand profiling so that we, we don't set people up um, and, and tell them that there will be service support and then not deliver on that. So we need to do the demand profiling in terms of mental health and also then the impact assessment. We need an impact assessment exercise as well so we can start to understand the potential magnitude of what we're dealing with here. Um, we talked about the trauma-informed approach and that needs to be embedded in policy and practice. Um, I think that starts with training and awareness raising. Um, and once, once we do that, then we can think about screening um, and support and all of those other elements of it as well. We've recommended that there's a mental health advisory group of trauma specialists. And when I say trauma specialists, I include very much here people with lived experience of trauma and lived experience of the type of traumas that we're talking about, because it is only through talking with, with those individuals that we will find about triggers. This is a, a very personal thing that people go through. Um, and we need to talk to people who've been affected themselves in order to really understand what it's like from their perspective. Um, so that mental health advisory group can be really, really important as an independent group, um, advising all of the structures about how they work. And then finally, of course, we need to think about going to protect the mental well-being of staff within the, the legacy institutions um, and, and how we not only protect them, but if they have um, difficulties th that, that are related to this work that we can provide them with treatments and services. Um, and they're so hugely at risk for some of them, it will be the first time that they've really been exposed to this type of trauma and we don't want them thrown in at the deep end. So we need to look after those staff so that we can keep them in a place of safe and social so that they can help everybody else going through that process as well. Even at the moment, there's about 230 people online. The easiest way to try and address the questions is if people could put their questions into the chat box. Uh, Christelle Palacios is one of the PhD students here at the university, or PhD researchers. Uh, she asked, could you speak a little bit more to the collective impact of trauma in Northern Ireland? So if individuals are hypervigilant and triggered, how does this manifest in the society overall? Um, that's a really good question. I think we have communities that are affected and people define their community in lots of different ways. Um, but we have we have groups of people who've been through shared experiences and will have particular types of triggers. Um, and so, so that that's a collective trauma. And then I think there's the trauma of the whole society. Um, and even people like when I started doing this research, I was thinking, well, this hasn't really affected me. This is something that's, you know, quite alien to my life and my world. And then I realized, you know, even when I was preparing a TED talk, actually, my mother was was um, witnessed the Claudie bombing. You know, I know so many people who've been affected that it touches every single one of us. Um, so that that collective trauma certainly is there. and. By, we're all members, we're all individuals, but we're members of different groups that have been affected in different ways. Um, and, you know, we can we can capitalise on that. And we know we're actually very resilient, actually, as a society too. And one of our studies showed that young people, our students who've had no adversity, actually have a moderate risk of mental illness. It's people with um, adversities kind of builds resilience. So it's not necessarily 
a, a wholly negative story. But um, yeah, we've been collectively traumatized and our parents have been collectively traumatized. And it's about trying not then, once we have an awareness of it, we, we then can start to take steps to change things for future generations. Uh, there was actually a, a question related to what you, you mentioned there, and I can't remember, can't rem I cut it out, so I can't remember exactly who said it, but it, it sort of follows from what you said. So is there such a thing uh, as trauma for a society, as a whole collective trauma in psychology? Um, and you did start to get to this, and if there is, then how do we start to, to treat that kind of trauma? I mean, this is, yeah, this is again thinking about the, the numbers, the proportions of the population who've been affected and the society that's been affected and a society that can be triggered by things that, that aren't triggers in, in other societies. So that's applying that model to the to the whole of the Northern Ireland population. Um, but, but for me, it's ultimately about giving the members of that society those insights um, and recognizing the resilience that's also within that society too. And it's really interesting that we're going through a pandemic. I think one of um, the, the potentially positive things is that it's brought, could bring people together, but we saw those divisions happening at the start that, you know, the, the two sides politically were falling back into the, um, into the their, their kind of trenches, if you like, um, in terms of how we respond to COVID. But um, that recognition of our common humanity is, is a really, really important part, part of that. Yeah, this is a question from Fiona, and she's really asking, is there a difference between how we deal with PTSD and complex PTSD uh, that lasts and endures rather than as one, a one-off event? And, and maybe I know you mentioned a bit, but mm -hmm. I'll just add to that, knowing your work a bit, you could maybe add the transgenerational aspect to that. Yeah, well, complex PTSD is um, it's a specific diagnostic category, um, and there's there's ways of measuring that, and it comes with additional symptoms that people might have. I mean, I presented a very kind of um, clear. Uh, set of symptoms for PTSD, but of course, when, when someone has all of those symptoms, they, they're going to be doing other things or will affect them in other ways. So we find PTSD often happens along with depression, and depending on what culture you're in, um, substance use can be a part of that as well, because you have to manage what's happening to you in some way. And then, of course, there's the effect of PTSD on families. So that hypervigilance. Um, can manifest as violence in the home even not always but but sometimes so if you have a parent who's explosive and reactive and they live in a culture where physical discipline is is um the norm well then that that can lead to violence and we've we've seen that and in our study the rates of childhood physical punishment were actually quite high and that's that's not to say that you you, you know that everybody's done that it's wrong but we now know that um children who've been exposed to violence as their brains are developing and, and you know it can be it can be really, really harmful and predispose them to mental illness and, and self-regulation problems later in life. So, so that's one example of it. But a parent who's drinking is un uncontrolled um, or unpredictable um, attachment. Uh, the, the relationship between a child and a parent as they're growing up is absolutely hugely important to their mental health. So um, growing up with a parent who has PTSD, who's doing their best, 
it can still create problems. And if you've got a community um, environment where there's a lot of those sorts of problems and there's also unemployment and deprivation, then of course that increases the risk further. So one of the questions actually was really interesting was about how this has transformed into a, a way of helping people who have alcohol and drug problems. Well, you know, what does a trauma-informed approach look like? Um, and once you start understanding alcohol and drug use, uh, problematic alcohol and drug use as a, as a response to trauma, then of course it means that in order to actually help that person you need to go back and look at what that trauma was, how have they responded to it and help them make meaning from that and reprogram that if necessary. Um, and in the meantime that, that person will, will need to manage their trauma in some way. You can't take away someone's coping strategy just like that. So we're we're sort of moving down the road of harm minimization rather than abstinence. So rather than saying to somebody who's taken drugs that you've got to stop right now, and we know the physical effects of that can be huge as well. Um, and equally for someone who's using alcohol in a very harmful way, it's about, well, how do we minimize the risk that that substance is posing to you and your family and then help you make meaning from, from what has happened to you so that, that we can start that recovery properly. Um, so so that's, how, that's what this looks like in relation to um, alcohol and drugs and substances. A little bit earlier you were just talking a bit about children and younger people and, and, and those types of issues and there were a couple of questions around you know, how is this type of work different with uh, younger people compared to adults and then a very specific question here which actually is a fascinating question from someone called Linda Baggy. Um, Siobhan you mentioned how important it is to create a narrative to make sense of the trauma but how do we work with those who are very early trauma when that's actually not accessible to conscious recall so maybe a technical question but it's but it's a sort of in, it's really about the intergenerational issue where maybe children don't have those same memories or the memories cannot be recalled and we're talking about making meaning out of it you know, how does that that work? Okay, so taking the second one first because I've forgotten the first one. <laughs> so you're gonna have to remind me of that one. But the thinking about um children who've had trauma exposure, um, and they've it's it's often that they've missed out on those key relationships and the features of that early attachment um between the caregiver and the child. So um in some cases it's about going back to sensory. Uh, sensory types of treatment and increasing that so that we get those neural connections so it can be things like rocking using um, uh, motion movement to play therapy is very very useful um, and, and helping kids bodies and brains re, um, re rewire in a way um, and, and make up for the effects of trauma so the relationships are crucial and of course, it's about making sure that those relationships are right um, in, in terms of the treatment. But also we can go right back to the, the physiological um, and help children in, in that way. And that's kind of, it's not really my area of expertise, but there are so many trauma therapists who work with kids um, and use play therapy and sensory therapy um, to help kids 
have those relationships with their caregivers so that they can recover or move to, towards a point of recovery so that they can adjust their stress response calibration, which is essentially what, what you're trying to do there um, in, in, a, in a subconscious way. So you're, you're working with the body, but you're, you're setting up that, those relationships as well. So, so you're protecting their mental health and promoting their resilience that way but um it's there's some there's this is an area for clinical psychology and psychiatry really um and what was the other question um, well i mean you sort of covered it it was really generally about the difference between maybe working with younger people and adults and and as you were talking there about the different approaches um it made me think there was a question here from benjamin thorne which asked if you could you know what do you think is the role of the arts broadly defined in positively aiding intergenerational transmission of memories. I mean, you've been covering a little bit of that, but I don't know if you wanted to say something specifically about the arts. Oh, there's, arts are so important. They provide us with those sort of safe spaces to express what's happened to us. Um, and, you know, creating art makes us vulnerable. We're exposing that vulnerability, but but having that validated when other people, um, it, it's, a, it's a mode of communication for the person who creates the art. It helps people understand at a deeper level. Um, so when I looked at uh, was it Colin Davison's portraits of people who've been affected by the troubles, and, and you can see the hurt and the pain, um, and that's that's communicated, and that's really it, it. Just can be really helpful to that whole healing process. Um, the the stories, the theatre, literature helps tell stories in a way um, that safe, particularly if it's fiction. Um, it's a safe way of communicating or expressing that and having validation and helping people see each other's perspectives, which is part of the trauma-informed approach. So by listening to a narrative from the other side, or um, that increases our capacity to have empathy um, for what that person has gone through. And then we can open up all sorts of avenues towards communication and reconciliation um, that's, that's powerful. So the arts is actually really really important part of all of this um it's not a treatment for traumas it's different it, it facilitates the process of of um of recovery but it's not a treatment for trauma in and of itself and i think these these are things we need to kind of understand the difference um there's a huge huge role for for the arts though okay thank you i hope you're you still okay for me to give a few more questions here yeah, they're coming in thick and fast I'm fine. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm struggling to keep on top of them but i'll do my best there, there are a couple of questions which are about some of your wider points you made mm -hmm. around issues of justice issues of society inequality is sort of creating these types of traumatizing environments for want of a better way of putting it and and indu callahan says here could societal segregation contribute to traumatizing the future generations? For example, communities and schools, especially. So I suppose building on that wider idea that you presented. So maybe a couple of thoughts on that. Oh yeah, this is it's a really interesting one. I think um, I would rather flip it and say that integration um, is, is the best approach for various different reasons. Um, when kids are playing together, they, they're just, they're all the same and they're then better. It, it's like, if you want to break down the stigma of mental illness, you, you show people, um, 
you get famous people who they who are already known for another reason and then they disclose that they have a mental illness and and, and this kind of helps reduce stigma so it's like uh, when, when we know each other as human beings first rather than as members of a particular community then that is so helpful because then we can see that other person's perspective because we know that whole person and we know that that we don't box them quite so readily um so that that breaks down barriers to reconciliation and we're much more easily able to negotiate with that person because we know that person because they're a friend second member of community so i, th I think um segregation is certainly it's certainly not helpful um and, and one of the byproducts of poor attachment in childhood is that that the child may grow up with a reduced empathy so the, the capacity to understand other people's perspectives um mind mindedness phonicky calls it the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes those things are built up through uh, parental attachment behaviors early in life so um if you haven't had enough of that stuff and you're living in a segregated community um where you don't meet people who are from the other community if you want to define it like that then you know your ability your capacity for empathy might be impacted as well and this is just a, a really devastating combination that that prevents peace building um so ideally young people would go to school together would learn together would know each other as human beings first um before they, they get into this stuff and then understand that we have different positions and particular things um, but if we know each other as human beings first then we'll be better able to work out our differences it's absolutely crucial and the, the best model is the integrated education model um, the shared education model doesn't do that fully um, it, it relies on contact but the fact that the children are wearing different uniforms um, it's, it's a huge barrier because they're going to different schools I think that's a huge barrier from my perspective uh, Dr. Joanna Young uh, maybe asked a question on the other end uh, how do we ensure the inclusion of older people who are often have less access to psychological therapy so we've been talking quite a lot about the youth but what about others um, in, in the society yeah and this is really important because many of the people who have been most affected by the trauma of the troubles um, are, are in you know in their later years um, and their parents and grandparents um, and they are as deserving of treatments and compassion and, and as anybody else and it's about helping helping them talk about what has happened and creating an appropriate environment in which that can happen and it's maybe about using different language than the language we use that that young people would use the um i'm trying to think of the word it's it's they have different there are different ways that they will their experiences and there's there's things like um music and there's there's it has to it has to be done in a way that recognizes where they're coming from as well um and the fact that to even the, the to many people the idea of talking about this stuff it's, it's just something you did not do so this is a radical shift um but it's not about talking just to anybody this is about communicating and working these things through in a very very safe way um so that, that message needs to be got across to people um but it's really really powerful and it's really important that it, it spans across all of the age groups yeah, thank you Th there's a number of questions here 
I mean, you, you started at some stage toward the end, talked a little bit about the staff working with these types of issues. And there are a few people who've actually sent in questions asking about sort of different groups of people and, 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 and how do they deal with these issues. Um, so I'm going to ask you those because I think they are quite interesting and quite practical. Um, so the, the first one, I can't see the person's name or I've missed it here, but I'm wondering, have you any advice for oral historians who might be interviewing about non-trauma related events who inadvertently cause a trauma memory to resurface? I guess oral historians, researchers, there are lots of people who are engaging, you know, in, in, in societies where there's conflict. So any, any thoughts about that? And then I'm going to ask you a couple of other categories uh, that people have, have raised as well. Okay, well, well, being trauma-informed means that you're um, watching for cues in, in the person that you're interviewing, that they're uncomfortable in talking about the thing they're talking about. It's about giving them information, firstly, about, about um, what areas you'll be covering uh, so that they're not surprised. Um, and if somebody has PTSD, they, they don't often come forward and are, they're not generally willing to discuss these things. So, um, for an oral historian, it's about how do you break down the boundary um, there so that you, and about asking about feelings and responses rather than getting a person to go through what happened. But that might not be helpful if you're an oral historian and you want to know facts or truths. So these are these are difficulties um, that you're going to have. So I think it's about being honest and upfront. And when someone um, when, when someone says they don't want to discuss something, then you just you leave it at that. It's about not showing too much discomfort though when when people do disclose things um, and not being not not responding with shock um, whenever because it, it mightn't be that they're triggered. They might just be telling you something that they've told nobody before, and your response is going to be hugely important there. Um, it's also about making sure that the interviewer is in that right the right place psychologically, that they're essentially in safe and social and and alert to these sorts of cues so that they're not doing harm, and then that they have um, appropriate supervision so that if they have any concerns, that they have somebody else that they can go to, and a pathway by which anybody that they're interviewing can seek support or treatment if necessary. Um, and all of those things that mean that you're going to be doing this in an ethical way. So we actually interviewed, Fanola Ferry interviewed people with PTSD resulting from the troubles um, for, for one of our studies. Um, and she worked with a psychiatrist to, to get an understanding of the cues or the signs that somebody might be triggered and the sorts of questions that, that you would ask that aren't, you know, that don't make it necessary for the person to go into detail about a particular event that might cause them distress, but also to be comfortable with emotion, normal, natural expressions of emotion and people crying and things like that, and just not react with shock because that can, you know, that can be devastating for someone as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe what you've said sort of covers this, but uh, Adriana Riley, uh, who she said she actually worked in the legacy unit of the coroner's service um, on legacy inquests, and, and essentially she's written quite a long question, you can maybe look at it, but um, she is essentially sort of saying, how does this practically apply to institutions and something like the legacy institutions, um, mm -hmm. where you would need this type of approach, but there aren't budgets or people are not trained to to, to look at these these issues, sort of where do you start, I guess, is uh, the question. 
Yeah, well, you cut through, you've got to do that demand profiling. Incidentally, somebody asked why ACES, prevention of ACES aren't in our recommendations. The recommendations are really only for the legacy structures, though everything of a government policy should be about preventing childhood adversities. It's the single most important thing we need to do in all of our policies. Um, but these recommendations that relate to the, the legacy structure specifically. I think that demand profiling is really really hugely important. So you look at, at what is each group going to do um, and think about how many people they're going to engage with and what is their capacity and resources and how many services can they provide and how many people are likely to need. And, and this is not an easy task, but you, you've got to start from that place. And if you can't provide adequate support for people, then you've got to really think about, you know, whether or not you're doing harm. Um, so I think that profiling part needs to to come first, although it's so essential that the, these um, these things get moving quickly because it's part of the peace process and it's part of a collective feeling as well. Um, and it's important to be really honest and upfront with the population about what you can deliver and how you can deliver it. And I, I, I think actually on the whole, um, we're having those conversations um, and people are disappointed, but it's better that they're disappointed at this stage that they know clearly what's going to happen rather than raise expectations to have them not met because that is re-traumatizing and that's causing new traumas and additional traumas. So um, it really is about thinking how many people is going to go through this and what can it deliver and being open and honest from the start to everybody. And lots more discussions like this with people who are involved in the legacy structures and radio shows and everything so that we can you know, really get that message out there about what this can and can't do. I'm sure you've experienced from, from South Africa as well, Brandon, that you know, that, that, that you could lend to this as well. What you're saying is really interesting. It is, I think, sounds a bit simplistic on some levels, but it is about raising the awareness and having that discussion. Uh, that you're setting up, if this infrastructure happens, one setting up a large infrastructure in which lots of people have had very terrible experiences are going to be going through it. And many of the people working in those institutions, which is the observation you made as well, themselves have also had different types of experiences. And so the first step is saying, yeah, that's actually the reality that we're dealing with. This is not just a, a technical, rational exercise of how we collect stories, document them, and deal with the past. That it, it has a sort of human uh, component to it and, and the sort of empathy that you, you were talking about. Um, and, and, and other people have raised similar issues just in, in different contexts, and I think it's the same issue. You know, so uh, someone called Keith says, you know, he's worked at the prison services, and I see so many inmates with trauma. Uh, that's never been looked at and has ultimately resulted in behavior leading to incarceration. You know, how does society address these issues? I mean, maybe it's the same, the same answer for you, but, uh, you know, a lot of people bringing in different parts of the, the whole society here to some degree. Can I deal with a couple of questions here that I just think are re really interesting? Um, sure. Sarah has said, so art is not a treatment for trauma. What is a treatment? Um, and if we exclude drugs, could treatment be a process comprised of different elements in a long-term period? And yes to all of this. Um, art is is one of these things that will promote healing generally. But if you have PTSD, a disorder of memory, and the way that that memory is encoded, that means that it, it interrupts your consciousness at certain triggers, then this is about reprogramming that memory. And trauma-focused therapy 
is is the therapy that, that does that so this is about working out what is that memory what's the problem with the memory why is it coming into dreams and nightmares and flashbacks um and then starting to recode that which will mean getting the person to go through that event in various different ways whilst other things are happening so that they can go through that event and remain safe and social so it's quite a specific thing that you're trying to do with a trauma-focused therapy. EMDR is um, eye movement and desensitization, desensitization reprocessing, and it's on the same basis. You're, you're reprogramming the brain's response to that trauma in a counselling situation. Um, art can help get the person into safe and social. Yoga, um, you mentioned yoga and complementary therapies. All of those things are about sort of manipulating the body right away from fight or flight back up into safe and social and helping the person trust someone else um, and building that. And, and they're absolutely vital. But you can see the difference there between something that's reprogramming that trauma to really get rid of how that obtrusive memory, memories and help process the, the memory in a healthy way. And that's slightly different and it's just rarely going to be achieved um, and, and that's that's one of the problems with PTSD. It's a, it's a disorder that often doesn't go away on its own. It can get better over time, but a lot of the things that people do in response to it are about covering up the symptoms, about taking tablets or alcohol to help them sleep so they don't get flashbacks. Flashbacks, um, yeah, that was right. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of the things, it's about a lot of the things people do. And drugs, I mean, medication for depression will help with that. But if the, if the memories come back in there as a flashback, then um, what we're doing is we're sort of covering it up rather than actually dealing with a problematic memory. You know, mm -hmm. so, so I hope I've, I've tried to explain that. And, you know, that's what the problem is. It's about the trigger and the way that the, the event has been memorized. Um, yeah, post-traumatic growth is an interesting yeah. one. Um, Post-traumatic growth is a, a relatively new concept and it's when people say that they're better as a result of what has happened to them. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's Stephen Joseph um, with that whole idea and it's absolutely amazing. We see examples of it everywhere. Um, I would just caution a wee bit about, about that, that Stephen himself would. Um, there's no requirement to grow. Sometimes the things that have happened to you have been so awful that just being content to being in safe and social, being able to function is enough. You don't have to be a better person. You don't have to be a, a great person because this has happened to you. What, you know, but you do have to find meaning and a reason for living and a reason for going on. Otherwise we're into suicide prevention territory. Um, so it's helping people come to a place where they can make meaning from what has happened and live a life that they're content with. Um, and importantly, not do damage to the people that are around them. And that's the people often, whenever they're coming into therapy, you know, that, that would be their goal is to just, just be content and to not affect their family in this way. And often that's enough. Um, but post-traumatic growth is a thing and it's a whole other seminar maybe where we talk to people and how do you promote it? How do you facilitate it? Well, the insight, awareness of trauma possibly is the first step um, on, on that journey for people. Okay, I mean, I think we're 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 steadily running out of time here. We've got a couple of minutes, and there's still quite a lot of questions. So I don't think we're going to get to them all. Um, there's quite a, an interesting one right here at the end, which is a difficult one. They want this. Uh, Susan McGuire wants to know. Oops, my screen just bumped up. Um, do you think that childhood sexual abuse has increased by the troubles um, and its related trauma? 
she was really observing that we didn't really mention that that issue at all yeah obviously childhood sexual abuse is a significant trauma and um when you think of um the the, the damage that that does to a person so often people who've been abused are right down and shut down all the time because they're dissociating themselves they're they're actually they've had to do that to cope with what has happened because they just can't think about it um because it, it's so 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 their stress response has been affected by the abuse uh, it is really what, what I'm saying, how they respond in distress. Um, and they can be triggered by anything that might remind them of that sexual abuse. Um, and that will put them right down into shutdown again. So it could be a smell, it could be, um, it can be a, any combination of anything. And we can't even, and we, we won't even necessarily know what it is, but, but that person's right back in there and they dissociate completely. Um, often not not always i mean a lot of people who have been abused or don't, don't have these difficulties and have managed to make meaning and process um but then um whenever we have other traumas that that come on top of that we know that when there's cumulative serious traumas then the risk of mental illness does um does does get greater and of course the stress response is affected by by the trauma that people will go through so so that's difficult and, and this can cause mental illness and substance problems as well um and i i think maybe part of the question was was, was sexual abuse something happened at the time of the troubles um, and yes, the, the answer has to be yes, and we're only really starting to understand the extent of it right now. And it's not something that's been talked about too much. Um, and maybe that's that's something that's a story that needs to be told. It's not something that that we kind of looked at specifically in our research, so we wouldn't have data or numbers. The numbers of people who were abused that was a separate type of traumatic event, at event type, and it was you know very small numbers even compared to other societies but huge rates of ptsd again coming with um sexual abuse huge rates of mental illness okay i think we'll, we need to wrap up here and there, there's tons of other questions i feel really bad that we're not going to be able to to address them address them all um there were a couple about the role of the media cultural mm -hmm. practices someone uh, anki often reflecting very much and sort of saying the lack of empathy in the society and a lot of things that people take as normal as a result of the conflict and, and how they interact with each other maybe is hugely problematic so that sort of cultural context and the media context um i don't know if you want to just comment on that and then i'll ask one more and we'll end on that okay so the media guidelines for um the the coverage of the troubles have been produced i can't remember where they're from but they're absolutely amazing and it's all about again being trauma informed and if, if you're given um or if you're promoting discussion in such a way that you're triggering people you know that, that you're deliberately trying to trigger people or um you know you know i think that that can be very damaging but a lot of what's happened is actually really really helpful um in helping other people understand um different positions different stories different truths um but then on the other hand we have details being shown of events footage of events um so you could be watching tv and all of a sudden something that you were involved in or that you were um present on the day could come up not being warned about that that that's just so that's a problem you know so when footage is shown when, when old footage is 
Joe, and we need to just be so sensitive about family members that are watching that and what they might see and and how that might be experienced. So, um, but there are media guidelines for this stuff, and the media have a really important role, I think, in opening up debates and discussions and helping facilitate that and getting the trauma-informed message out there um, to to the public. And we need to work with the media, of course, in this too. So. Okay, well, thanks. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the last unfair question. And you and I discussed this because we were worried that people would have been tuning in because they thought we were talking about COVID nineteen and trauma specifically. Mm. Uh, but someone did ask that question, and I sort of yeah. think, given the circumstance we're in, maybe we we end with that one. And their question was, if lockdown due to COVID-19 amounts to a form of political bullying, which is obviously their opinion, uh, what will the responses uh, uh, and the resulting trauma look like? So I know it's a bit of an unfair question, but uh, any sort of reflections on our current context and maybe how that might play itself out from your, your trauma knowledge? And then I'm going to turn over to Kate to end off for us. Well, I think it's all about how we make meaning from, from this scenario right now. Um, uh, and again, as a lot of this just goes back to our own personal experiences. I kind of, I resisted. I was, I was angry at the start, looking for someone to blame for COVID and why did I have to do this and forgo what I wanted and endure these losses. Um, and I was able to make meaning from that and understand that we were all going through it for a purpose and a reason. And I guess if you have a different understanding of COVID then it will be very difficult for you to make meaning from these measures and very difficult for you to adhere to these measures. And you may well see them as bullying. And there are many different truths about COVID and we're only starting to understand the science of this and how the science has been applied in the form of guidance and rules. And these are rules that are affecting our lives. And, and it goes back to that meaning making and acceptance. I, I think I've reached a place of acceptance that this is the way it's going to be for a while. Um, but but I was right down there and resisted too, you know, and maybe that resistance is a good thing. Maybe we shouldn't just accept it. We should keep questioning. So I, it's not a great answer, Brandon, but <laughs> I think that, that, that that's where we are, where we are with it. This feedback's really, really useful for me. So don't think if you've written something and hasn't been commented on that I haven't seen it. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful for that. And there are social justice issues that are at play here. Absolutely power inequality, things that are happening that are outside of the individual that they have very little control over. And I completely take that on board. I'm not saying that we're all responsible, certainly, you know, for our own destiny. But um, I'm just trying to give you that give you that balance. And you know where I am on Twitter and email me through the university if you, if you want to have a, a chat about any of the stuff or if you have any additional questions. No, well, I appreciate it. And I mean, you have now been on the go for an hour and a half here and staring at the screen, which is rather difficult. So just from my side, I want to thank you very much for a really informative talk. And somebody had reflected in the questions, say, in the responses saying, and for a very uh, detailed responses to the questions, which I think is really true and, and really helpful. Uh, a lot of compliments from different people. And from my side, you know, I think the depth at which you went into things and the time you've given this, given the importance of it's really, really important. And I just want to thank you very much on behalf of the Transitional Justice Institute, NCOR, um, and Healing to Remembering. But I'm going to just hand over to Kate, uh, the Director of Healing to Remembering, just to, to, to wrap it up. Well, first of all, just to say, to, to re-emphasize that we are going to um, arrange to make the recording and slides um, available at a later date. I know people um, keep asking that to um, ask, thank everybody for participating and um, 
uh, managing to take part with all those numbers and especially to those of you who seem to have had to log in um, three, four or even five times, um, either that or there's a lot of people with the same name. So thank you for persevering so that, that you could get in. Um, and uh, thanks to Brandon too for, for chairing it because it's, uh, it's not the easiest way to do things. Um, the next one up is um, entitled, Is the UK Heading Towards Combat Impunity? It'll be led by Dr Thomas Hansen and it'll be on Friday the 5th of June at 3pm. So we look forward to seeing you then. Just, I'm, I'm amazed by the, the responses, really good. I mean, there's a whole piece on trauma-informed schools and what that looks like, and we could do a whole seminar on that. Um, but yes, all of this stuff can be applied in the school environment as well. Um, that, that's really, really important as we, we focus on the next generation and teach those emotional regulation strategies and, and teach kids about safe and social and fight or flight and that help them understand that. I was I was really 30 by the time I all this stuff sussed, you know, um, and we can do it at an early stage. So, so the Department for Education are working on this stuff. So there's a lot of people who care deeply about what happens to the next generation and, and they're, they're on, on ball with us too. So be reassured as well. Thanks. Okay, well, thanks, Siobhan, and thanks, uh, Katie, and to remembering Transitional Justice Institute, INCOR, and all of you. I mean, to have 240 people online, 244, I think, was the, what we had at one stage, is quite fantastic. And we hope you'll join us for the next seminar. You can reach us on all, we've been posting it up there, Twitter and Facebook, and all those things. And I know Siobhan responds a lot to her own Twitter as well if there, there are issues and questions you want to raise, and I put up her connection. So, Thank you, everybody, and uh, we hope to see you soon. And thanks again, Siobhan. Bye. Thank you.